1: Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday as we gather to worship and hear the Word of God proclaimed. You can learn more about our church at GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com
2: I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting at verse 6. We're going to read verse 6 through verse 13. The sermon title is Abounding Love. We continue on um, working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul has, if if you've been here all along, he's sort of been uh, giving this extended introduction in which he talks a great deal about his affection for the Thessalonian church. And this is the point where he sort of wraps up the end of his introduction to the Thessalonians. One of the striking things about the book is that it's basically an extended introduction and an extended conclusion, because as we come together next time to take a look at chapter four, you see that it starts with finally then, and so he writes his introduction, then he goes, all right, now finally we're going to bring this to a close, which I think is really quite a unique aspect of this letter, of this book. So let's take a look at the end of this introduction to him, where he again talks about How much he cares for the church in Thessalonica, how much he longs to see them, and um, how he prays for them. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought to us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. For everyone who might not have been here when we read the passage just leading into this, this portion of 1 Thessalonians has a really important context. Paul, who wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had gone to the church in Thessalonica to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. He had been opposed by a large number of people within the city, but there was a small group of people within the city who had believed and had started a church But because the opposition to Paul and his associates and the message that he was preaching was so strong, he was driven out of Thessalonica by the people who had been opposing his message. And then they followed him to the next town and they drove him out of that one as well. And so Paul knew that the opposition for this small fledgling church that he had been able to establish by the grace of God within this city was going to be a church forged in the flames of opposition. And he knew how difficult it is to stand up against those who oppose you. When the world opposes you, it's difficult to stand up against it. And so he was afraid that maybe, that maybe his work in Thessalonica had been in vain. That's what he said in the verse just before the one that we read. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, He sent Timothy to learn about the faith of the Thessalonians for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Because he was driven out of the, of the city of Thessalonica and because he was driven out of the next city, he had no idea what was continuing to go on within that church that he had planted in Thessalonica. And without any means, you know, they didn't have Facebook at the time that Paul was doing this, so he couldn't check on the status update of, you know, first church of Thessalonica, right? He couldn't see if it was still existing, if it was still there. And so he simply did not know if they still existed. And he was hoping and and longing to be with them again, and he was desiring to find out if they were still there. And so he sent uh, Timothy, the man that he describes as his true child in the faith, to find out if the church was still there. And he was willing to be without his son in the faith to find out what was happening in Thessalonica. Was the church still there? Did those who had believed bear up under persecution? And Timothy had brought back good news. The church was still there. The faith of the Thessalonians was real. It was so real that it was willing to stand up under hardship and opposition and persecution. And this was very comforting to Paul. It filled him with joy and it filled him with comfort. And so within this section of Scripture, he is rejoicing because the church is still standing. We should recognize that this is a big deal. We recognize, maybe intuitively, what a big deal this was. It is a big deal to recognize that something continues when there is a significant chance that it might not make it, when the odds are stacked against it, when it's engaged in conflict or in battle. You know what a big deal this is if you are an American. Americans still sing about how the flag proudly flew over Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor through the night as the British shelled it. And as the dawn broke, Francis Scott Key, who was watching in a boat a little ways outside of the harbor, looked to see if the American flag was still flying over the fort there. And as dawn broke, he wrote a poem about it. He said, oh, say, can you see, by the dawn's early light that that flag is still there, right? We still sing about it. It's such a big deal in the American consciousness that there was this chance that Fort McHenry might fall to the British and that as, as dawn broke, it may be that the Union Jack flag would be flying over it, showing that there had been a defeat. And It was such a big deal that through the night, in the midst of constant shelling and constant battle, that this fort had still stood, that Americans still sing about it. It became our national anthem. This helps us to understand how great the joy that Paul had was. He was leaving the church in Thessalonica, and as he left it, he's like, at the twilight when I was leaving, the light of that church was still gleaming. But I know that they're experiencing a shelling far worse than what Fort McHenry experienced at the hands of the British for that 25-hour period of time. I know that they are locked in conflict. And so will the light still be burning when Timothy goes there? And Timothy sends news. They're still here, Paul. The church, he still planned it. They're still believing. The light has not gone out. Jesus Christ is still being worshiped. And so, Paul, filled with joy, makes it clear again in this section of Scripture just how thankful he is for the Thessalonian church and for the fact that their light is still gleaming. He talks here about three different things. He talks about the good life. He talks about abounding love. He talks about holiness in this last part of the introduction to the Thessalonian church. And these are the three things that we're going to talk about first. He talks about the good life. You note in verse seven and eight, it says this, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Knowing that the light of the church has not gone out brings incredible comfort and joy to Paul. He and his associates were experiencing distress themselves and persecution and opposition, and he knew that the faith of the Thessalonians now still existed, and that gave him hope and comfort. And he's so encouraged that in verse 8 he puts it this way, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It was life. To know that the Thessalonians had not lost faith Had not lost heart And continues to stand in the midst of opposition and persecution If we were to put it another way Paul looked at the life of faith of the Thessalonians believers And he says this is the good life To know that you trust in Jesus This is real life right here This is good life You know that Jesus brings life right John 10, 10, Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And here Paul lets us know that Jesus is right. That abundant life is knowing Jesus and to see that other people know him too. This is the good life, Paul says, to know that you still have your faith. This is life right here. I'm really living to know that you still trust in Jesus.
1: Today's message on grounded and growing in Christ will continue in just a moment. To learn more about Orlam Park Christian Reformed Church, to listen to other messages from our audio ministry, or to make a financial gift of any amount, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. That's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This audio ministry is made possible by gifts from listeners like yourself, and we greatly appreciate all those of you who continue to make it possible to share this work with listeners across Chicagoland. Now let's return to today's message.
2: It stands a pretty stark contrast to what we're going to be tempted to believe that the good life is, doesn't it? Throughout the week, I spent a little bit of time trying to find a a suitable illustration of what people believe the good life is. I turned to my favorite uh, living theologian, Kanye West, to try to introduce this again. And uh, Kanye's talk about what the good life is Is all far too vulgar for me to mention here But it's really illustrative, right? Because a lot of people A lot of people believe that the good life Can be found in an utter hedonism That's what we are tempted to believe And so I found a better place for us to look Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 2 You probably remember We we worked our way through the book of Ecclesiastes A year ago and In Ecclesiastes chapter 2 Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, to t- determined that he was going to put to the test every pleasure that could be found under the sun to see if there's sort of lasting meaning or, or benefit, to see if the good life could be found in any of those things. And he tried the whole gambit in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, if Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is a list of the things that he tried in the course of that passage of Scripture the preacher, Solomon, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, to try to find the good life under the sun, apart from God's revelation, he tries comedy, he tries alcohol, he tries architecture and design, he tries nature, he tries business, he tries wealth, he tries culture, he tries sex. And his determination was that you can't find gain there. That seeking any of those things, seeking the good life in any one of those things is like trying to catch the wind in your hands. It's going to let you down if you try to find the good life in one of those places. The good life cannot be found there. There's no lasting meaning. There's no lasting gain. There's no lasting purpose to be found in any one of those things. And yet that list is pretty exhaustive in terms of the things that we're tempted to look to to give to us the good life. But here Paul gives us something else to try, shows us another way that we can truly live, to trust Jesus and to see other people trusting Him too. This week, because of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the last couple of weeks really, I had my mind tuned to this as I was engaging and interacting with other people. I had my mind tuned to the fact that the good life is to know Jesus and to see that others know him too, to serve him and to see other people serving him too. And so let me tell you a few things that happened in the past two weeks that reminded me of what the good life is. I went to a dinner put on by Bethany Christian Services, and I heard stories about a number of people in this congregation who were moved by their faith in Jesus Christ to adopt and as I heard those stories, I thought, this faith-motivated life, this is the good life. I got a text from a friend this past week, because we love each other and because we love the Lord. And he wrote, and he goes, just finished reading Second Chronicles. Very striking how many kings exhibited faithfulness when they were young and weak. They were blessed by the Lord and grew strong, only to trust in themselves and fall hard not to conclude that success is one of the most dangerous things for leaders of God's people and I read this faith motivated text about God's word from a dear friend and I thought this is the good life to be able to interact with my friend Chris in this sort of way And I heard from a few different Christian Reformed ministers this week. One is a a Hmong minister who is serving a Lao congregation. The other is a Cambodian minister serving a Cambodian congregation in the Christian Reformed church, both in the United States. And both of them were talking about how they have a lot of challenges. They're serving in a place that has very, very few resources, where a lot of the people are immigrants. They don't know the culture. They don't have very much money. They don't have very many resources. One was talking about how this winter pipes burst in the church, and, uh, and so the whole church flooded, and they have, to, they have to meet in a tiny Sunday school building. And they were like, but I'll tell you what, God is so faithful. And then they both talked about how good it is to trust in the Lord, how good it is to be able to tell people about Him, how good it is to be able to worship Him, how good it is to be able to gather together with God's people and sing praises to Him, even if it's in a place that's not very nice even if it's in cramped quarters, even if it's uh, in several different languages with certain people not understanding certain parts of the service when they all recognize that they're serving and we're worshiping Jesus together. And I thought, this is the good life. For Paul, it was life to hear that the church in Thessalonica was standing fast in the Lord. And it should be the good life for us as well to trust Jesus And to know of the faith of loved ones. This is life. This is the good life. And because of their faith, Paul wanted to see them. And he had such a deep affection for them. And knowing that the church was still there made him want to race back to be able to see them again. In verses 10 and 11 make this clear. He said, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He asks God, he asks Jesus that his way might again be directed to this small church that he, by the grace of God, had had the privilege of planting so that he might interact with these people again. Because they were joined in a common faith, because it was the good life, because it was life to know that they still trusted in Jesus Christ, he longed to see them again. He had a deep desire and a deep affection for this church. And this is the way. This is the way of those who trust in the Lord together. This kind of deep affection and care and love that exists. And he offers a central prayer. Loving this congregation in such a way he prays that they might have abounding love for one another and for all and that this abounding love might establish in their hearts holiness before God. And so this is his prayer, a prayer that has a hoped-for result. He prays for abounding love the sort of abounding love that establishes holiness in the hearts of the believers at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So let's take a look at the prayer. He prays for abounding love, being so thankful for their faith and desiring and longing to see them. He prays... For an abounding love for the church And one aspect of abounding love Is a deep affection Is a desire to to be face to face And that's what Paul is expressing here He's expressing an aspect of the abounding love That he has for the Thessalonian congregation He wants the same sort of love To exist within this congregation But it's more than just a a Sort of a deep affection Or an abounding affection It's more than that It's desiring the good of others This is the way that the scriptures talk about love. Love is not reduced to a simple feeling. It's not abstracted from a feeling. Love does contain with it a a deep affection, but love is desiring the good of others. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter reminds us what love is. It tells us that love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so when Paul is saying that he wants for abounding love to exist within this church, he's saying, I want for this congregation together to rejoice in the truth, to not keep a record of wrongs, to pursue that which is good. To be patient and kind with one another To not envy or boast To not be arrogant or rude What he's saying is I want, what to be, uh, I want this to be abounding in your midst That you seek the good of each other And that you act to that end And that because of that You have an affection for each other Love's not simply Giving people what they want Love is giving people that which is good And we all know this, right? I experienced this this week when my daughter woke up i got her out of bed and i decided i was going to give to her breakfast and i asked her elsie what do you want for breakfast and she said candy she wanted candy for breakfast and i love my daughter and so i didn't give her candy right but my daughter is like a prodigy, prodigy at finding candy. So I started making oatmeal for her, and I turned, and she had a sucker. I have no idea where it came from. And so I went to her, and I was like, I said, no candy, I said oatmeal. And I took away the sucker, and I'll tell you what, she was mad. Not just a little mad, she was very mad. And so she cried and cried and cried, and I put the sucker away, and I kept making the oatmeal, and then I turned, and she had found a bag of Smarties. Again, I have no idea... <laughs> how she had done this. She is extraordinarily gifted at finding candy in our house. And I was like, Elsie, no Smarties either. And so I took the bag away from her. And boy, did the meltdown happen in the Bukema family kitchen earlier this week. You'd have thought that I was torturing my little daughter by taking away candy. And so I sat her down. I looked at her. I was like, Elsie, look at dad. And she was like, she looked and she wouldn't look at me i was like elsie you need to understand something your dad loves you and so that means he wants a healthy breakfast for you because i love you i want good for you not what you want i want something better for you than the candy that you want for breakfast do you know what i'm saying you see what i'm saying The sort of love that Paul wants to exist within the body of the Thessalonian believers is not to say, I'm going to give to you whatever you want. He's saying, I want to give to you good things. I want for goodness to pervade within this congregation. I want for a shared desire for the Lord to be what's at the center of this congregation. I want for you to desire God's ways within this congregation. I want for you to rejoice in what is good in this congregation. And in those ways, I want love to abound in the congregation. I don't want you to just give to each other what everybody wants. I want for you to give to each other what is good. I want for you to seek the good of the other people in the congregation and to abound in working towards that which is good together. That's what Paul wants for the church in Thessalonica. He wanted for them to want the good for each other. That's true love. Paul wanted Paul wanted a, a God-directed congregation. This is a truly loving congregation. You know, one of the things that, that historians say really characterized the early church was love. Was love. There's a, a, a theologian, a very early theologian, a man named Tertullian who was, who was writing. He wrote a lot, of, um, a lot of works directed at his pagan neighbors, at the Gentiles, to try to call them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talked about how the common way that unbelieving people surrounding him would talk about the Christians is they would say, my, how these Christians love each other. That love was a characteristic marker of the early church. And it's this love that was so attractive to the world as they looked on and saw. And this this is exactly what Paul is praying for, for the Thessalonian church. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Paul saying my prayer is that you would start with loving each other within this congregation in Thessalonica and that love would then overflow to the rest of the people in Thessalonica who live along with you. Love each other in the church. Love everyone, those outside the church. You know, there was, a, there was a massive disease that, that spread through a lot of the, the Roman Empire early on in the life of the church. It was so bad that a lot of people fled from the cities where the plagues were, were spreading, all except the Christians, the Christians who stayed behind because they said, we have been called to love. And so the sick people who are, are you know, being left behind and being left to die because of the self-interest of so many people in the surrounding area, we are going to care for them. We are going to express love for them. The Christians in the early church determined, we're going to live out this call to love each other at the cost of our own lives. And there's sociologists, there's a guy named Rodney Stark, he's at Baylor University. He talks about how this was a, a major way that the gospel spread through the Roman Empire is that people saw the love in action of the early church and thought, Well, the savior that the Christians follow, he must be. He must be the one that I should trust in. May love abound in your midst for each other and for all. May the Lord make us increase and abound in love for one another